Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I have an amazing guest in line for y'all today, Mr. Chris DeSantis. Chris, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Earl. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Oh, yeah. If it's anywhere as good as our uh, pre-recording conversation (laughs) was, this is going to be amazing. But listeners, uh, before we get into this, here's what I want you to know about Chris. Chris is an independent organizational behavior practitioner, speaker, podcaster, and author with over 35 years of experience working with clients in professional service firms, both domestically and internationally. Over the past 15 years, he has been invited to speak on generational issues in the workplace at hundreds of the leading U.S. law and accounting firms, as well as many of the major insurance and pharma companies. His new book, and one we're going to talk about quite a bit today, Why I Find You Irritating, I love the main title, uh, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. Um, you know, Chris, with, with all that background and with this idea of, of generational friction, I'm really, really interested to hear your response to the first question I ask all of my guests. When you hear the words responsible leadership, what do they mean to you? Yes, I, I, I tried to do a little homework on that, Earl, because uh, it is a, it's such a large question. But I, I use first the second word, leadership. Leadership is the consequence of people choosing to follow you. So when they choose to follow you, they've placed their trust in you. And so I think as a consequence of their placing your trust in you, you as a leader have an obligation to care for them. And not only care for them, but you also have to own your, your choices with regard to them and the consequences of those choices. So I think it's a contract between uh, you and the follower and that you have a responsibility, again, going back to that word, you have a responsibility to carry through on what you are supposed to be doing on their behalf, thereby ensuring or, or the continuation of trust in you. I hope that sort of fits it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love it. And I love where you went there, right? Because that is a, a, an important topic to me, right? That idea of, of how you become a leader being yes. that people have to choose to follow you. I can't, I can't come up. I don't care if I own the company. I can't come up and tap Chris on the shoulder and say, hey, Chris, you are going to lead these people today. Right. They have to want to follow you, right? Right. Well, this is the confusion I think people have is that you're, you are managing these people, uh, but uh, leading them is their choice. Meaning that, so you can only be described by them as a manager, but they can choose to describe you as a leader, but you cannot have the assignation of a leader uh, independent of their acquiescence to it. Yeah. 
No, that is that is great. I, I'm glad that you came out of the gate with that because, uh, you know, listeners, if you take nothing else from this conversation, and trust me, you're going to take a lot more from this. If you just listen to what Chris said right there and you apply that and you realize you have to earn followership every yes. day. Yes. It, you know, it's not a one and done deal, right? You have to earn it every single day. Yes. Well, I, I, I liked, and I'm, I'm going to make reference to this throughout here because I, I also did some homework on, on your background in terms of the shields that you, that you um, adhere to. And I think your first point was right there. You are always on display. So every day is who you are, meaning you have to be who you are. I think you have to stay within some range of reasonableness every day. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I love when people use my shields uh, on me. So I love it. <laughs> well, they are, they are so well done. And uh, listeners, I, I'm, I'm not uh, advocating, but uh, when he does write this book, you should buy it. <laughs> oh, well, I love it. Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll let my, uh, I'll let my folks know that, that we've already got our first, uh, our first endorsement and, and, and we're not even on the presses yet. <laughs> so, um, speaking of books again, mm-hmm. uh, why I find you irritating <laughs> navigating generational friction at work. Um, again, I think this is such an important topic as we talked before we hit record because, I think that sums up very well everything that we're going through right now, generational friction at work with yes. what we went through with COVID, with what we're going through now with the Great Resignation. I think a lot of these issues can uh, come down to generational friction. I love that how you put that. Um, so let me start at the beginning here. Like, why? Why did you write this book? What was your inspiration for it? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question because um, around, as I'd mentioned, uh, I've been talking to groups about this uh, topic for about 15 years. But a few years prior to that, uh, I have a lot of experience working with professional services firms, and I'm often brought in to run schools. And when I say run schools, it's really the new consultant training. So I was involved with either uh, delivering or designing the training for these young consultants. And so what I started to notice uh, around this 18 or so years ago was that their behaviors in terms of their interactions with others were, were markedly different than the, than the generation that had preceded them relative to how they behaved in terms of how they interacted, their expectations. This group was far more assertive, which... Um, management often misconstrued as being uh, insubordinate in some capacity, but they were, they were more willing to voice their concerns in a way that um, I thought those who preceded them were slightly more, I hate to say the word, but more passive in terms of the instruction they receive and then their reaction to it. So, and then I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I started to read about it and I put about 60 of these books under my belt over time. Uh, and so now, and then I found, okay, maybe I can find a niche within this topic. And that's what this is. It's sort of my view of what hasn't been addressed, uh, tied to what the most interesting things that have been addressed. So in that sense, it's, it's my own point of view as it were. Yeah. Well, and again, those are great points to make because, you know, we, we saw this a lot, especially, you know, uh, a decade or, or more so ago when the millennial generation was, uh, becoming more prominent in the mm-hmm. workplace. Uh, you know, people always quoted, you know, oh, they leave their job every, I think right. the lowest number was like two and a half to every three years, they would mm-hmm. change jobs. And and this was at, at a big root of that 
that discomfort, that searching yes. that they were going through, right? Well, there's there's more than one factor here, but yes, it's exactly right. There, uh, to some degree, this generation is on a journey of who will I become, and so in that sense, they're not doing anything any other young people would do. Is they're, they're saying, well, let me try options before I decide who I will be, and so they're just and so with that, they, they're moving around. The other thing that that isn't always explored here is that the 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 compact between us and the corporations or companies we work for. There was once an inferred covenant, and the covenant was, if you work hard on my behalf, I will guarantee you a job for life. Remember the pensions and retirements and the watches, all of the things that were accrued over time. Now, we've destroyed the covenant, and so now society is much more transactional, meaning I get from you if you give me something in return. And so we move from a, a, a relationship that was inferred over time to one more that's immediate in the transaction. In fact, I think the young people don't work for corporations, they work for the manager. And if the manager is a poor excuse for a manager, then the corporation is a poor excuse for being there. Yeah. And that is that is such a critical piece too for for listeners to to absorb yes. is, you know, they they don't quit the business, they quit you. Exactly. Um, and, and I think, again, and I, I will probably reference it quite a bit through here because I think it's a very important topic right now, but I think that is part of what is driving this great resignation. I hear people say, you know, people don't want to work. People are this. They got all this free money. And I'm sitting here like we're, we're seeing, you know, that may work for some of, you know, the very basic minimum wage type jobs. Mm-hmm. But we're seeing pharmacists. We're seeing doctors. We're seeing nurses uh, resign. Nobody got enough free money to replace those salaries. Right. Um, and we have to look at this piece of why don't people, if, if you're a responsible leader, you have to be asking yourself the question, why don't people want to work for me right now? Exactly. And it, basically it goes back to another one of your points. Again, I will keep drawing on these things because they're so it's, you have to be, as you pointed out in shield number two is introspective. You have to yes. say, who am I? Who am I? And, and what is, so you have to have some, not only internal self-awareness, but you also have some external self-awareness of how you are seen by them. And so I think one of the challenges with um, the generational differences, we don't see them as young people in, different than us. We imagine them as younger versions of us. And this is the confusion. They are not us. And so, uh, but we, we project ourselves onto them and then we are disappointed that they're not acting as I would have acted at that age, which is, is sad because we're, we, they're not us and you're, and we're making really wonderful human beings here in terms of citizens. They, they are, they're more aligned with caring and, and engagement and all of the things we want them to be. Yet, uh, we, we, we ding them for not being who we are. (laughs) Well, and it, yes, you are so spot on. And the irony there is, is we, we know that that's a good thing. We have sayings that say stuff like, if you do what you always did, you get what you always got. <laughs> but then we get upset when they're not doing what we always did, right? Yes, exactly. And, and another point, which I think you alluded to when we were off um, before we started on the air, is that we learn to manage a generation before we manage the people we're managing. So meaning that our learning is through observation of how we were managed. Now, that doesn't always work for the next generation because there's a lag between what they've experienced and what I have experienced. Do you, you follow? We're not yeah. aligning with their needs. 
Yeah, well, and I think that is a, a great point uh, that you bring up kind of in, in the very first chapter uh, of the book when you talk about that, uh, the the title of the Roshada effect, and you tell oh, yes. a great story uh, kind of about this. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to ruin it because I want people to go out and, and buy a copy of the book. Uh, but through the story, you talk about uh, one of the characters gets called a millennial and their response is, uh, you know, they think everybody younger them than them is a millennial. I'm too young to be a millennial. So right. let, let, let's talk a second about that, because I think this is an important distinction for folks to remember. There's a difference between uh, where somebody is in a stage in their life, uh, what generational differences are, and then that we have multiple generations in the workplace, right? Yes, yes. Th- th- that's spot on, Earl. The, the, this, the stage of life thing is that we all go through these stages of life from child to, uh, to elders. And there are, now there are six stages of life as a consequence. There used to be four, but we're, we've expanded adolescence to some degree and we're living a lot longer. So you have these six stages. That's one aspect of, of who we are. Another aspect is, as you uh, alluded to, is the generational lens itself. Our experiences of how we view the world are predicated on what we observed in, in our awakening. When we were children, what did we experience in terms of what was the socioeconomics of our, of our upbringing? What was, what was happening in the culture? What were those flashbulb moments, the things you remember, 9-11, uh, Kennedy assassination, uh, landing on the moon? And how did that start to shape a view? That view sort of stays with you through life because it's reinforced by the people that your age and sort of your cohort group. So we have a, a view that is distinct to our generation. And then we have the stages of life that we all go through. So there's, so you have to play all of these elements out uh, in terms of, and, and, and as you've pointed out, the youngest um, have a very different experience growing up than the next youngest. But when, as you get older, you don't see the difference between them. You just see the young. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's and it's always a shock. And I'm sure you you get this every time you, you have this discussion is when you hear somebody bad mouthing a millennial and then you <laughs> define what millennial is the time frame and they realize, oh, crap, I'm a millennial myself. Right. Well, that's interesting, too, because uh, inside a generation you and this is one of the the problems with the generational talks is that they, they have these artificial silos. You know, if I'm a boomer, I was born between um 44 and 64. That's the silo. That's not really true to who we actually are. The silo is just a construct. It's more like waves. There's the first wave of a generation that sort of defines who they are. So the early boomers sort of defined the, 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 how we interpret boomers. And then the latter crowd, I'm, I'm, I would call myself a disco boomer. The latter crowd has to live under the auspices of these definitions, which may not reflect entirely who we are because we start to wash into the next generation who then redefines who they are. So the, the problem with this is, again, inside you see the difference. Outside, you just see this the boomers. So in that sense, that's what happens to us. We, we get categorized. And then what happens on top of that is the press further categorizes us. I mean, what headline with millennial hasn't been bad? 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and then you add into it uh, again, and that's why I like you, you talk about the, the stages of life and, mm-hmm. and the experiences. Like, you know, people ask me, what, what generation do I belong to? And I look at them and I say, yes. Um, you know, because I'm, I'm right on the cusp yes. of uh, the tail end of Gen X and, and uh, millennials. Right. Uh, but I was raised by my grandfather, who was a World War II veteran. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, my grandfather and grandmother, but they're from that generation, right? So I've got at least three generational influences running through my body right now. Yeah. And this is my point because of the artificiality of this, this construct says you were born in this year. So you must be by definition this, but your point is more powerful. And in fact, as a storyteller yourself, it's the narrative of your life defines who you are. And so your narrative was highly influenced by people that lived through the depression. And so you and and the stories you told about and and you were told about being sort of uh, observant of authority, trust in government, all of those things were really influencing you. You have a bit of an old soul, even though your age is more reflective of a younger crowd. Right. Yeah. So listeners may be be hearing us talk right now and, and be like, wow, that sounds extremely complicated guys what am i supposed to do how do i make sense of all of this in my organization what would you say to them well first of all go back to what earl has said is understand introspective know who you are what is your story in terms of when, when you hear the narratives if you read the book you'll hear the narratives of these different generations and so then you have to ask yourself what story is most reflective of who i am and then as a consequence of that how am i judging you through the lens of who i am so, for instance, I'm a boomer and I'm a boomer and I'm, I'm sort of a I have some of a lot of that sort of respect for authority, uh, follow the hierarchy, uh, do what you're told. So I'm more of a child of a tell do model. So when I, I my expectation is as a leader or as a manager, I'm going to tell you to do it. and You're going to do it. I do not expect you to challenge that or discuss it. Now, it's always a surprise to me when somebody wants to discuss what I'm telling them to do. Because in my day, as a, as a young person in the workplace, I was not privy to those kinds of discussions. So it's a little alarming to me. So my point here is first know who you are and then take the time to understand who they are and how we might be different. And then how do we judge those differences as opposed to uh, being accusatory of their difference, which is what we tend to do. Yeah. No, and I like that because that's another one of those things uh, with with military leadership. A lot of people believe that military leadership works that way, right? It's I tell you to do something. I have a higher rank. You do it. No questioning. And there's a time where that needs to happen, right? We, we If we're in the middle of combat and we're throwing out orders, we expect people to respond and we can have the conversation later. But when we're not in that specific situation, Uh, A lot of people are shocked to find out that we are expected to, like if we see a glaring problem, we see a glaring issue, we are expected to kind of push back, if you will, ask the question, you know, hey, Sergeant, why are we doing it this way? This could happen. Why are we not thinking about doing it this way? In a a respectful manner, obviously. Yes. Yes. But if you don't do that, you're considered pretty much derelict in your duty when you go down and you say, hey, I did it the way you said, Sarge. I saw this was happening and then they're going to be like, well, why didn't you tell me that that was happening? Yes. Well, it's an interesting thing here because again, I'm limited in my knowledge. So this has more uh, about the opinion of the military relative to how they operate, but they, they do allow for more autonomy than we might, uh, that we might think initially in the sense that 
that, that they engage people more fully. There's another layer here too, is they have junior officers that are more guides, which is interesting because if we, if we took some of those aspects and we translated that into dealing with the young at work, we would have, you know, this is coincidental in the sense that, look, give them some sense of autonomy, tell them, give them the context of what they're doing, why it's important, how they might go about it, then discuss it and then have somebody available to them that, that, that shepherds them through the process. Again, these are all reasonable things to do with the young, and we're already doing them, as you've already uh, made the point, in the military. Yeah. Well, and I think that is, uh, you know, again, a key piece of some of this generational friction. Like, mm-hmm. we, we talk about millennials, we talk about Gen Zers, and, you know, their kind of angst of, of not fitting into an organization. But when you look at it, and again, I'm curious what your experiences are here. Maybe they're a little bit different than, you know, some of the research I've, I've put together and, and uh, been able to find, but it is kind of that, right. Is, is they are a higher, uh, they, they come into an organization with a higher level of education. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they have a higher uh, experience level uh, in some of these areas because They've been volunteering. They've been doing it. Mm-hmm. And they're not coming in with a lack of experience, a lack of knowledge. And where we have those issues that cause them to leave is we don't give them credit for the experience uh, and education that they bring to the table. And they feel undervalued. So they want to go someplace where they do feel valued. Yes, I think you're, you're making a, a number of points. I would add to those points is uh, they were raised differently. Their, their parental models were more of an engaged disgust. See, uh, the, the millennials in, in the fancy term is concerted cultivation. There's a concerted effort to cultivate my child into some, someone special. Now, this involves a lot more engagement. Uh, where we were more passive in terms of the authority figure, your grandparents raised you from an authority model. And so they didn't, they didn't discuss with you the things as much as the the children today have an expectation of discussion and context, you know, what's going on here. So they have a voice at the table. To your second point too, is that these, these are educated, uh, the education levels, something like almost 40% of millennials will have degrees and Gen Z's maybe upwards of 50% of these young people will have a degree or in the process of getting one. So they're, they're educated. There's a third thing here that's, uh, I've always found anecdotal, but interesting is that these are the first generations, Gen X started this. These are the first generations that have been teaching upwards. You see technology is, is, was a switch because all knowledge flows downward until we got to technology. And all of a sudden now, we are dependent on the young to teach us these things. And I think they misconstrue that this their gift in one area sort of uh, allows them knowledge in all other areas. You know, the illusion of knowledge. If I know something in one area, I assume I know everything in other areas, which I don't. Yeah. And I think that's to their detriment. I think there's a, to some degree, there's the, the we, we should have a sense of humility with the things we don't know. And we should appreciate the help we're given by people who do know. But yes. again do it through a discussion. No, I, I love that piece right there, the humility and, 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 you know, being comfortable knowing what you don't know. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I go back again to, to the Marines and one, one of the things that they beat into our head almost literally was it's okay to not know. It's not okay to not know and not try to find out. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I think that's great. I think that's great advice. Uh, I think people are uncomfortable. Uh, 
I think when you're a young person in the workplace and somebody asks you a question, I think it's, it's a bit intimidating and you think, I should know this. I sh- maybe, is this a test? You see, they're coming right from school. So the questions are, are, are in the context of, you know, do you know this? Do you know the answer? And I think the reality is the answer is not everyone to your point. We won't know the answer, but I will find that out. I think we have to be more comfortable in saying, I don't know, but I'll find out. Yeah. And that, that goes kind of both ways, right? And it's, it's, it's a good thing for a leader to be able to have that skill. So, you know, it, it communicates, uh, you know, humanity. It communicates, yes. hey, if my leader is okay saying they don't know something, it's okay for me to say I don't know something. It's exactly right. I think, again, this is by leading by example, saying this is why I like uh, one, your points about this is that when you're on display, share some of, share, share some of your, your, your faults, not, not in some elaborate manner, but everyone, we, the only reason we are where we are is that we've failed upwards in the sense that we've made mistakes, we've corrected those mistakes, and we've gotten better as a consequence. But nobody succeeds without making mistakes. Yeah, no, that is uh, that's good stuff there. Um, so going into the book again yes, here, I like. I kind of want to go into uh, part two a little bit here because I like where you went with this, and, sure. and I want you to uh, get give the listeners here some uh, uh, some insight into on chapter seven. You talk about the balance myth. What is the balance myth? Well, the, the balance myth is that um, the, the idea here is that there's a work-life balance. There was never a work-life balance. There was work and there was life. And so in the boomer world, one of the things that when we were raised in the workplace, what, there used to be the luxury of leaving the work at work before the PC, before the internet. You left work and then you went home to your life. So we compartmentalize that. Now, what's happened is, is we're moving, we moved away from that model and there's n- still no balance. There's still no, uh, I, I, I use the terms like work life. We've evolved. There's work life uh, integration. There's work life accommodation. And now there's work life options. But the point being in all of these things is work, work has ascendancy, meaning it is important. But to the generations after boomers, uh, work is, yes, it's important, but so is family. So is family. So what we've done is we've elevated the importance of family. Let me give you a quick example is that as a young boomer, if somebody said to me, uh, you know, uh, Chris, you've got to move from Philadelphia to Kansas City, I would say, when do you need me there? Today, if you ask that question of anyone and say, look, uh, uh, Earl, I need you to move from, from Indianapolis to LA, you would first say, well, let me check with my family. And the point here is you're not resisting the move, but you're saying, I have other, I have other priorities in my life that I have to take into consideration. We never used that language in the past. In fact, the, the very, you know what year the uh, work-life balance came in as a term? 1986. 1986. Wow. So any boomer that said, I would like a little more balance in my life, you know what the answer would have been? <laughs> you're fired. There's your balance. You got all day now, right? So... <laughs> What we have done is we've, we've said, now, my problem with work-life balance is we are trying to, this is a symptom. It is not the root cause. What you really want, and you have it, again, in your version is create an environment of success, allow people to do what they do well in terms of their strengths. That's engagement. 
You see, I think what we should do is focusing our energies on getting people more engaged around the things that they enjoy doing and that they're particularly good at. Then we reduce the requirement to get away from the work. You see what my point here is that if you really like doing what you're doing, you are in flow. And if you are in flow, you're not thinking about, gosh, I, I could be home watching TV. No. And so, and by the way, I am not suggesting that we have to be 100% engaged. I'm suggesting if you move, if you move the needle to even 20% engagement, you change, you change the whole um, value proposition relative to how I feel about what I'm doing. Again, your shields, as it were, uh, really, really delineate that in more detail than what I'm describing here right now. Well, no, and 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 I, again, I, I love what you're saying. Obviously, I mean, referencing the shield again there, but but what you said there at the end, it reminded me of the old uh, Mark Twain quote, right? Where he says, uh, "If you make your vocation your vacation, you never work a day in your life." Yes, uh, yeah, I, I think that's what you're talking about, right? It's, it's like exactly you, what I'm talking about. When you find the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning, that drives you, that makes you feel fulfilled, you're not working. You're yeah. enjoying life, right? It's exact. And now let me make a point about the young because we've put them on this journey. Uh, the, these um, millennials, to some degree, when they were growing up, one of the things, and if your listeners are here, if you have children, you're still doing this today with your Gen Z children, is you're, you're taking them around to activities. And my guess is they're probably involved with anywhere between three and six activities, you know, um, baseball, uh, pottery, you know, archery, whatever. The th what you're doing is you're saying, what is it? that you will find interesting that you will you will thrive at doing so we're putting we're, we're putting them on this exploration you know of self saying where will i be good and i think the work work is a continuation of that journey where can i make the most vital contribution because they want to make a contribution they want to give something back and they also want to do something that engages them so we're, this is what their request in the workplace is not that they're being entitled saying, I want to do this because I don't want to do that, but rather I want to do things that are more representative of how I can contribute. But we don't hear it that way. We hear it as the cliched demand of an entitled generation, which is not necessarily what they're saying at all. Maybe a few people, but, we, but it's not true to most of us. We all want this. We all want to be engaged. Yeah. Well, to that point, my my guest uh, in the last episode, uh, John Arendez with uh, Treliant, we, we had a similar conversation. Uh, his organization's 100 uh, percent online, you know, Zoom, whatever their platform is, 100 mm -hmm. percent. And we were talking about this. One of the things was with families, uh, you know, he encouraged, hey, if your kids are home, let them sit on your lap, let them play behind you while we're having the meeting. Let them be exposed to what it is that that mommy and daddy uh, do. And, and I think that kind of plays into it here as well. I, I'm in, going to be very interested to see as we get uh, 10, 15, 20 years down the road and we see, uh, do some of these studies on the workplace, how remote work has inspired and influenced uh, people's career paths because now they get to see what mommy and daddy do. And hey, that looks kind of interesting. I enjoy that. I think that's an interesting point you're making, Earl, because I think Gen X is very different in this sense, is that they are more private as a generational group. They, they were raised as latchkey kids, and say they were the last kids in America that really have a private life. And so when you get home at the end of the day with these kids, you'd say, what did you do? They tell you nothing. Where'd you go? Nowhere. Who'd you see? Nobody. And so they are used to their privacy. And so this, this um, 
remote work, actually, I think they're the only generation really designed for a pandemic because they are just, they were independent anyway. They are, and so in that sense, they just figure it out. So if they're in the office, they figured it out. Now they're in the home, I'll just figure it out. But they also, I think they have a bit of a, again, I go back to this um, distinction between their public persona and their private persona. And, and I think to your point, I think the young millennials don't make that clear a distinction and they're more likely to re, to involve the, the total person. It's one of the reasons the poor millennials accused of oversharing. You've ever heard that, right? Oh, they're oversharing. I don't think that's necessarily fair. I think these kids have been called every day and say, what did you do today? And they share it. And that is their habit of they're basically their methodology of engagement. They'll tell you a little bit about themselves. Gen X is the reverse of that. They, they work through a competence model. They'll say, okay, we're going to work together. And as we work together, I'll start to tell you a little bit about me, but I'm not going to do that unless there's a reason to. And the reason right now is it'll build a relationship. If you know a little bit, as you show me, you are competent. Do you see the, the distinction here between how they interact? Yeah, no, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Cause you know, I was that, I was that person, you know, uh, with, with my uh, younger brother, you know, I got off the, we got off the school bus, went home and, and, you know, it was just uh, the two of us for, you know, a few hours until, you know, people got home from work. Or yeah. And, and, you know, that was, uh, it was funny because as you were saying, I was like, yeah, that's exactly. So what'd you guys do today? Nothing. Nothing. Right. You know, and we had ran around the house, been playing oh, yeah. in the woods, playing video games. We'd done a whole lot of something. Right. But Nothing. you didn't share it. You didn't share it. You, this is so interesting about you all. You, you would, you thought, well, what, what's the business of yours? What, why do you need to know that? And, and yeah. so I think that carries forward into their idea of the, the office. This is why they, they're, they're more, I think they're going to be more comfortable with this notion of a remote workplace because it gives them a, a stage of life issue. If they have kids, they have more space to, okay, spend time with them. But also it's an independence issue for them. I don't know if this is entirely the best way to go because I believe the young are more interdependent. They like to work with you and they're on a learning curve. And most of our learning comes through observation. And so if I cannot observe you doing the work, how do I pace myself in learning how to do it? And how do I know the nuances of the work? Because those things aren't expressed in a Zoom call or an email. No, that's that's valuable. Um, and, and another piece that's very valuable that you talk about in the book, and I was really happy to see this in here because I'd, I'd read some stuff on this before, um, but I like the way you kind of uh, talk about it in your book. But one of the pieces with that, I believe, is, uh, you know, the, the younger generations, millennials, Gen Zers, the, those sorts, uh, they have, and I think it's a lot because of this openness, they have a lot more willingness and, and actually desire. Um, and I've read in a bunch of, of areas, they place uh, mentoring as one of the top yes. job perks that they're looking for. So they really love this mentoring concept, right? Yes, yes. That's so interesting because I, I, this comes, I think it comes really, if you look at the Gallup survey, those questions they ask, does somebody care about you at work? Is, do you have friends at work? Is somebody interested in your future at work? Those are all tied to a, a shepherd, as it were. And again, remember now, their parents the concerted cultivation model, or in the Gen Z's case, the co-piloting model, their parents were engaged in their lives in a profound sense. For instance, they knew who their friends are. They vet their friends. So they know what's going on in the drama of a 10-year-old's life, which in my world, no, my parents didn't care about who my friends were. They just 
happy that I had them and go play. But the point being is this, this, this engagement, I think, again, has a carryover effect and they're looking for somebody who's interested in them. And why not? Why not? What, what human being isn't interested in having other human beings interested in how they grow and develop? So right. the, it's the challenge of the term that I, that I take on, mentoring as a term. And I say this because we don't say mentors in advance of the relationship. We say mentors as a consequence of the relationship. So for instance, when I say to you, Earl, who were your mentors, then you can name them. But if I say to you, who will be your mentors, you can't name them because it doesn't make sense. Mentoring is, an, uh, is, is a product of intimacy. And so when you assign a mentor, you, you have the, and this is where the anxiety comes in, especially as a boomer, I'm assigned intimacy with a person I don't know. And I, 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 I like the idea of advisor or a guide or a shepherd, but when you use language, words have power. And so when you use the word mentor, you, you, you assume that you're going to be interested in my entire life. And I don't want to know about this kid's life yet. I just want to know, will they get the report out when I need it? And in, in that sense, I want to know, are they getting along with other people? I, I want to know small things, not large things until they earn that. So that's one of the challenges. It's the expectate the mis expectations of each other relative to the relationship. Yeah, no, that that is uh, again so good. And I think the other thing is, we kind of talked about it a little bit here. It, one of the generational differences uh, is is the level of access that we have to to figures. And uh, you know, I, I talk about this. One of the things I talk about with that shield you mentioned a couple of times, you're mm-hmm. always on display. the The key component to that is uh, when it comes to mentorship you never truly know who all you are being a mentor for mm-hmm. uh, right. you know, because people see you, you know, we have kids watching, you know, uh, LeBron James and he's a mentor for them. They've never met. Right. He's a mentor for them. We have right. people watching coaches, uh, sports figures, uh, you know, musicians. Um, I remember growing up, there was uh, you know, all the controversy when uh, Marilyn Manson first came out. And uh, he made a comment at the time I didn't fully understand, uh, but he said, if you don't raise your kids, I will. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah. And and I think that's what he was talking about. If you aren't setting these, these, these mentorship role model type things for for your kids, they're going to look to me. And, And we don't get that that's a big thing that millennials have done for a large part of their life is they've had all of this stimuli around them and they've got to select who and what they want to follow and, and be their mentor. Well, I think you've, you've, you've hit on an insight that I hadn't considered, Earl, is the fact that when you assign people these roles of mentor and so forth, what you've done is you allowed others to abdicate their, in, their responsibility to be in a role model. Saying, well, he's a, she's assigned a mentor. Why do I have to act in any way that you see what I'm saying? Yeah. When we all have a responsibility to act in this way, which I think is critical because I do, I, I think you're right. I think they want to, everyone wants this. And this isn't just a generational thing. Everyone who is young wants to emulate the best of others when they see it. Yeah. No, that is, that, that is, yes, a hundred percent there. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't get into the one more piece uh, in the book, which I think is extremely valuable. And, and listeners, again, you need to go grab a copy of Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating Generational Friction at Work uh, by my guest today, uh, Chris DeSantis. Um, 
But in the book, and th- this was actually kind of unexpected, but I'm glad you went there when I saw it. You kind of take on uh, the performance review. So, so uh-huh, let's talk yeah. about that for a minute. What 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 yeah. is uh, kind of your your issue, if you will, with performance reviews, and how can we uh, make them better? Well, one of my issues with the performance review they're they're not performance reviews; they're opinions of performance reviews. Mm-hmm. And so one of the challenges with that is they're already skewed towards whoever is in the majority. So if, if, they're, if you are a representative of a minority, if you're a woman, if you're, you're, you're an African-American, if you're, you're a gay or whatever, if you are out of the mainstream of the group that is making the decisions, then in fact the interpretation of you might be skewed, is likely to be skewed. So that's one problem unto itself. They're just not objective. The only objective performance review is when you have looking at tactical skills, things like counting correctly, things that are that the difficulty is when you're dealing with abstract skills, judgment, decisiveness, uh, confidence. Those are abstractions and they are very subject to the interpretation of whoever saying that. And then again, skewed toward the majority relative to how we interpret that. So that's a real problem. The other problem I have with it is it's, it leads to the commoditization of who we are. What I'm saying here is if I evaluate you, Earl, on 10, 10 measures, uh, you start paying attention to things that may not be germane to will, will make you a, fine, a success. For instance, things that are interesting about you is you, you have a, a, a deep knowledge and interest in areas of leadership and caring for others. You have a way of uh, vocalizing how you feel about that. You have, you're a great writer in the sense of your conciseness. Those are your gifts. Why would I evaluate you on your numbers, on adding number? You follow what I'm saying here is the sense that we, we, we misalign our focus relative to the contributions the individual is making. I go with one, again, going back to your, your shields, number seven, play to the team's strengths. What we should be doing is saying, okay, what is the key contributions you're making on this particular project? And that's the focus of my evaluation relative to what we're trying to accomplish. And then what are the ancillary contributors to that focus that we want to improve to be good enough? You see, I'm happy with good enough in some categories. You don't have to be a five in your accounting. Uh, You have to be at least a a three, a competent three, because that's fine. So my point here is these performance evaluations force us to, to, to pay attention to some of more negatives because negatives are louder than positives and they may not even be aligned with who we will be in the future in terms of our, our, our greater success. Did, <laughs> I went a long time on that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's beautiful because it, it's, it's really important. And again, I really want listeners to take this away. And this is one of the reasons why uh, when I'm working with folks uh, on hiring, I say one of the most important questions you should ask on an interview is, what does success look like to you? Mm. Because they may have a completely different idea of what success in this yes. position looks like that you've never even thought about. Exactly. And, and uh, so that, you know, again, and I love it. And I agree with you on the, on the performance review piece. Uh, uh, well, not only the things that you just said, but I think one of the things that really, uh, really sticks in my craw, so to speak, is, you know, too many folks only do them every six months and that's oh. it. Well, that's this silly should be a too, continuous right? process, right? Exactly, exactly. The young, again, it's not the young's fault, but we, we are a, a culture of immediacy. If you remember, I, I use the example of McDonald's. When I, I remember as a kid going to McDonald's, 
10 minutes later, I had my food. I thought, wow, this is amazing. I got my food in 10 minutes. Today, if you're in a McDonald's for 10 minutes, you're going, what is going on here? Do I have to make this myself? And my point <laughs> right. here is we push for sooner rather than later because the, the older the information is, the more obsolete we perceive it to be. So we have to be closer to the event than further away. And our, our performance evaluations are not, they're just not designed that way. I think they're, and so I think they've got to go by way of the dodo relative to that. I also think uh, uh, one of your points is we are on teams. Work is a team sport. And so we should be starting to evaluate team performance as opposed to individual performance alone, because it's the context of your contribution to the team. Because again, we, 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 not every contribution is weighed equally, but every contribution might be important in its own way. So we're not very clever there yet. No, I will agree with you 100% on that. And, and you know, again, talking about remote work and that stuff, I think teamwork uh, is really the future of work. Yes. We're, we're seeing a lot more of that. So Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm with you on that. And I, but we don't reward it, because, uh, but, which is interesting because the company gets the reward, which is the ultimate team. Right. The, people buy it or they don't. So there's the ultimate reward. So why, do, why doesn't that cascade down to the teams that actually execute? Well, yeah. And, and again, I think you're, you're making a very valuable point there that kind of uh, with everything we're talking about that kind of brushes up against something uh, I once heard Simon Sinek say. Uh, he says, uh, people don't get upset with executives that have big bonuses, big perks, as long as they're taking care of the people. Right. If you yes. get the big bonus, if you've got the executive gym, nobody cares if you're taking care of the people. It's when you have those things, then you turn around and you lay people off that yes. they start getting upset. Um, well, one of the this is one of the most basic genetically predisposed uh, traits in humans. And this, this came from, I think, social, the book Social, or was it the, Your Brain at Work? But both of these books address it, is this notion of fairness. Yep. If, if I don't see fairness, I don't want to work here. And that's the bottom line. So this notion of if they're getting perks, but if I'm also feel, being treated fairly... I'm okay with that. And to your yep. point, if I'm doing all this work and I see my colleagues getting laid off and not getting anything as a consequence, I'm not okay with that. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Chris, this has been a fantastic conversation <laughs> here. We're coming up on 45 minutes already, if you can believe it. Wow. This um, has been great. You've been very nice, Earl. Thank you. No, this has been awesome. And listeners, you know, I know you've taken a lot out of this, but, uh, you know, before we work on closing things out, I do have to, you know, ask the question, uh, even though we covered a lot of ground, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover that you really do want to leave listeners with? Well, there was one concept that I will, I will let linger because we, we are on the same mind of this, and that is the concept of lopsidedness. I want us to accept that we are, we are each unique in our own way that well-balanced isn't necessarily the answer to who we should be, but rather what is unique about you that you can leverage to become the success that you want to be. And I think that dovetails quite clearly with play to your strengths. Mm, I love that. And that's a great question. You know, listeners, I'll challenge you. Go back, rewind, listen to that question again and, and answer it. And uh, when you're, when you're interacting with the, these posts on social media, share those with us. I'm sure Chris mm -hmm. would love to see those answers as well. Uh, but, but do that, ask yourself that question and, and answer it. That is, that is a great question to ask, Chris. Thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. So 
folks have been listening to us chat here. Uh, they they want to go buy a copy of Why I Find You Irritating. Uh, they want to find out more about you and what you do. What are some good places for them to go look? Yes, if, if they'd like to buy a copy, it's available at Amazon or, or Barnes & Noble on, online or Books A Million online. And so... And even at my publisher, uh, which uh, is uh, Amplify Books. So it's available through all those places. I have a website. If you went to my website, it's, it's cpdesantis.com. Uh, that'll just explain who I am. And then also it will give you a link to ordering it as well. Outstanding. Well, I'll make sure that that, uh, that gets in the show notes there. So for listeners, as always, it's just a, a click of a link away. Um, Chris, again, I really appreciate you spending the time with us, having this great conversation, writing this book, uh, tackling a very critical uh, topic that that I know a lot of my listeners and a lot of leaders really need to get a better handle on and and figure out. And I think this book is a great way uh, for them to do that. So thank you for your time. Thank you for being with us. And thank you for being an outstanding guest on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Oh, my gosh, Earl. Thank you very much. You've been a great host and you've been very... Um kind, let's just say. <laughs> well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid.